The surgeon looked up without expression. Is he ready? Ready is a relative term, said the Medeng. We're ready. He's restless. They always are. Well, it's a serious operation. Serious or not, he should be thankful. He's been chosen for it over an enormous number of possibles, and frankly, I don't think... Don't say it, said the surgeon. The decision is not ours to make. We accept it, but do we have to agree? Yes, said the surgeon crisply. We agree, completely and wholeheartedly. The operation is entirely too intricate to approach with mental reservations. This man has proven his worth in a number of ways, and his profile is suitable for the board of mortality. All right, said the Medange, unmollified. The surgeon said, I'll see him right in here, I think. It is small enough and personal enough to be comforting. It won't help. He's nervous. He's made up his mind. Has he indeed? Yes. He wants metal. They always do. The surgeon's face did not change expression. He stared at his hands. Sometimes one can talk them out of it. Why bother, said the Medange, indifferently. If he wants metal, let it be metal. You don't care? Why should I? The Medange said it almost brutally. Either way, it's a medical engineering problem, and I'm a medical engineer. Either way, I can handle it. Why should I go beyond that? The surgeon said stolidly. To me, it is a matter of the fitness of things. Fitness? You can't use that as an argument. What does the patient care about the fitness of things? I care. You care in a minority. The trend is against you. You have no chance. I have to try. The surgeon waved the med engine to silence with a quick wave of his hand. No impatience to it, merely quickness. He had already informed the nurse, and he had already been signaled concerning her approach. He pressed a small button, and the double door pulled swiftly apart. The patient moved inward in his motor chair, the nurse stepping briskly along beside him. You may go, nurse, said the surgeon, but wait outside. I will be calling you. He nodded to the medange, who left with the nurse, and the door closed behind them. The man in the chair looked over his shoulder and watched them go. His neck was scrawny, and there were fine wrinkles about his eyes. He was freshly shaven, and the fingers of his hands, as they gripped the arms of the chair tightly, showed manicured nails. He was a high-priority patient, and he was being taken care of. But there was a look of settled peevishness on his face. He said, Will we be starting today? The surgeon nodded. This afternoon, Senator. I understand it will take weeks. Not for the operation itself, Senator, but there are a number of subsidiary points to be taken care of. There are some circulatory renovations that must be carried through and hormonal adjustments. These are tricky things. Are they dangerous? Then, as though feeling the need for establishing a friendly relationship, but patently against his will, he added, Doctor? The surgeon paid no attention to the nuances of expression. He said flatly, Everything is dangerous. We take our time in order that it be less dangerous. It is the time required, the skill of many individuals united, the equipment uh, that makes such operations available to so few. I know that, said the patient restlessly. I refuse to feel guilty about that. Or are you implying improper pressure? Not at all, Senator. The decisions of the board have never been questioned. I mention the difficulty and intricacy of the operation merely to explain my desire to have it conducted in the best fashion possible. Well, do so then. That is my desire also. Then I must ask you to make a decision. It is possible to supply you with either of two types of cyber hearts, metal or Plastic, said the patient irritably. Isn't that the alternative you were going to offer, doctor? Cheap plastic? I don't want that. I've made my choice. I want the metal. But see here, I've been told the choice rests with me. Isn't that so? The surgeon nodded. Where two alternate procedures are of equal value from a medical standpoint, the choice rests with the patient. In actual practice, the choice rests with the patient even when the alternate procedures are not of equal value. 
as in this case. The patient's eyes narrowed. Are you trying to tell me the plastic heart is superior? It depends on the patient. In my opinion, in your individual case, it is. And we prefer not to use the term plastic. It is a fibrous cyber heart. It's plastic as far as I'm concerned. Senator, said the surgeon, infinitely patient. The material is not plastic in the ordinary sense of the word. It is a polymeric material, true, but one that is far more complex than ordinary plastic. It is a complex protein-like fiber designed to imitate as closely as possible the natural structure of the human heart you now have within your chest. Exactly. And the human heart I now have within my chest is worn out, although I'm not yet 60 years old. I don't want another like it, thank you. I want something better. We all want something better for you, Senator. The fibrous cyber heart will be better. It has a potential life of centuries. It is absolutely non-allergenic. Isn't that so for the metallic heart, too? Yes, it is, said the surgeon. The metallic cyber is of titanium alloy that... And it doesn't wear out. And it is stronger than plastic, or fiber, or whatever you want to call it. The metal is physically stronger, yes, but mechanical strength is not a point at issue. Its mechanical strength does you no particular good since the heart is well protected. Anything capable of reaching the heart will kill you for other reasons, even if the heart stands up under manhandling. The patient shrugged. If I ever break a rib, I'll have that replaced by titanium also. Replacing bones is easy. Anyone can have that done any time. I'll be as metallic as I want to be, doctor. That is your right, if you so choose. However, it's only fair to tell you that although no metallic cyber heart has ever broken down mechanically, a number have broken down electronically. What does that mean? It means that every cyber heart contains a pacemaker as part of its structure. In the case of the metallic variety, this is an electronic device that keeps the cyber in rhythm. It means an entire battery of miniaturized equipment must be included to alter the heart's rhythm to suit an individual's emotional and physical state. Occasionally something goes wrong there, and people have died before that wrong could be corrected. I never heard of such a thing. I assure you it happens. Are you telling me it happens often? Not at all. It happens very rarely. Well, then, I'll take my chance. What about the plastic heart? Doesn't that contain a pacemaker? Of course it does, Senator, but the chemical structure of a fibrous cyber heart is quite close to that of human tissue. It can respond to the ionic and hormonal controls of the body itself. The total complex that need be inserted is far simpler than in the case of the metal cyber. But doesn't the plastic heart ever pop out a hormonal control? None has ever yet done so. Because you haven't been working with them long enough. Isn't that so? The surgeon hesitated. It is true that the fibrous cybers have not been used nearly as long as the metallic. There you are. What is it anyway, Doctor? Are you, are you afraid I'm making myself into a robot? Into a metallo, as they call them, since citizenship went through? There's nothing wrong with a metallo as a metallo. As you say, they are citizens. But you're not a metallo. You're a human being. Why not stay a human being? Because I want the best, and that's a metallic heart. You see to that. The surgeon nodded. Very well. You will be asked to sign the necessary permissions, and you will be then fitted with a metal heart. And you'll be the surgeon in charge? They tell me you're the best. I will do what I can to make the changeover an easy one. The door opened, and the chair moved the patient out to the waiting nurse. The med-eng came in, looking over his shoulder at the receding patient until the doors had closed again. He turned to the surgeon. Well, I can't tell you what happened just by looking at you. What was his decision? The surgeon bent over his desk, punching out the final items for his record. What you predicted. He insists on the metallic cyberheart. After all, they are better. Not significantly. They've been around longer. No more than that. It's this mania that's been plaguing humanity ever since the metallos have become citizens. Men have this odd desire to make metallos out of themselves. They yearn for the physical strength and endurance one associates with them. 
It isn't one-sided, Doc. You don't work with metallos, but I do, so I know. The last two who came in for repairs have asked for fibrous elements. Do they get them? In one case, it was just a matter of supplying tendons. It didn't make much difference there, metal or fiber. The other wanted a blood system or its equivalent. I, I told him I couldn't, not without a complete rebuilding of the structure of his body and fibrous material. I suppose it will come to that someday. Metallos that aren't really metallos at all, but a kind of flesh and blood. You don't mind that thought? Well, why not? Metallized human beings, too. We have two varieties of intelligence on Earth now, and why bother with two? Let them approach each other, and eventually we won't be able to tell the difference. Why should we want to? We'd have the best of both worlds, the advantages of man combined with those of robot. You'd get a hybrid, said the surgeon, with something that approached fierceness. You get something that is not both but neither. Isn't it logical to suppose an individual would be too proud of his structure and identity to want to dilute it with something alien? Would he want mongrelization? That's segregationist talk. Then let it be that, the surgeon said with calm emphasis. I believe in being what one is. I wouldn't change a bit of my own structure for any reason. If some of it absolutely required replacement, I would have that replacement as close to the original in nature as could possibly be managed. I am myself, well pleased to be myself. It would not be anything else. He had finished now and had to prepare for the operation. He placed his strong hands into the heating oven and let them reach the dull, red-hot glow that would sterilize them completely. For all his impassioned words, his voice had never risen. And on his burnished metal face, there was, as always, no sign of expression. Hello, that was Segregationist, written by Isaac Asimov in 1967. With me today to discuss it are my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our guest, Alan Trewartha. Now, first of all, we've said this show covers stories from 1935 to 1965, or the golden and silver ages of science fiction. Now, this was written in 1967. Mark, can you explain why this story fits with those eras, even though it falls past our cutoff point? Um, well, I think it's a story by Isaac Asimov, and I think it's fair to say that um, the date of the evolution of his ideas and his style sits very squarely in the middle of the era. In fact, probably even towards the beginning of the era that we're talking about. And insofar as he became a very famous, successful, well-loved author, probably the best-known name author in science fiction, um, he did this by developing a relatively small number of ideas. I think his biggest fan would not say that his writing style evolved to a more literary uh, height... <laughs> than his earliest stories. I mean, he, he and, and are literary heights sort of something that people associate with a kind of later phase of science well, fiction? Well, I think, I think this is one of the things that I, you know, I, I hope we'll explore perhaps a bit this, this, this show and perhaps a bit in later shows, that the era we're talking about, there are great writers in it, but that is not really primarily what it's known for. Great and writing. Great writing as opposed to great science fiction. Let's say, I mean, style, style, and an approach to writing, which people from a literary background recognise, even if they don't like the topics or or hate robots or whatever. Um, and the era that comes after the Silver Age, um, I mean, I, other people would have big arguments with me about this generalisation, but good from my <laughs> the way I'm in my head organising it. 
then it, the, the age that comes after it is called the new wave mm-hmm. and a lot of the directions that that was hoping to take were to do with it being better writing in a in a literary in a literary sense or at least in a sense which uh people outside the science fiction genre would recognize as better writing and if you wanted to post a child for it not having yet got to better writing i think asimov is your child <laughs> and then we, we might get on to some of that his strengths yeah. and weaknesses as a writer i mean some of it um some of his, his a lot of his stories uh, involve conundrums sort of puzzles um which is very uh, the first story that we did in this series was by john uh, w campbell and that was sort of a favorite kind of story of his was to sort of pose this problem or this riddle and a bunch of one hero or a bunch of heroes would sort of thrash out the problem and try to try to solve it um now, Isaac Asimov was Jewish. Uh, while few, if any of his stories, have explicitly Jewish themes, the idea of robots, which is a Czech word, can be traced to Jewish folklore. Alan, can you tell us a little bit, bit about that? Yeah, I think you're alluding to the, the folk story of the golem, um, which is, um, I think it's, a, like it's, do you say Czech? But, but Prague um, is the it's the chief rabbi of Prague, the stories were meant to be about, called Rabbi Lowe, I think it was. Okay. And he... Built a man out of clay from the from the banks of the of the river Stettel. I can't remember the cover of the name. That doesn't sound right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, and yeah, and he built a, a creature, uh, and there are various variations on the story. But the the sort of core of it is that it, it takes commands and it takes them literally, and it can't hurt its creator. And uh, this is the sort of the beginnings of a, the idea of uh, robots that were sort of. Um, Became the stories that Asimov wrote, which were you know about taking ideas literally and carrying them out to sort of absurd sometimes uh, lengths. So, what happened in, in this in this folk tale about this this golem? Um, well, that, that, the, that this rabbi creates. There were, there why, were, why did he create it in the first place? Uh, to protect the Jews. Okay, it was it was it was a sort of uh, it was a superhero in a sense, um, protecting uh, the, the. Well, it's Jew- a weapon, isn't it? Yeah. It's a sort of super. Yeah, good point. Yeah, the laws that governed it meant that it couldn't kill its creator. But in one of the the many, there were quite a few variations and lots of different stories. Um, and one of those variations is that it grew to enormous size and just landed on him. So you know the, there was is the inadvertent. The golem grew to enormous yeah, size and the, landed on the rabbi. Yeah, and killed him. Um, I mean, there were lots of variations, but um, yeah. And there are stories uh, which might be not, you know, the original, they've been, they've been since uh, adapted. So you have things like, you know, they're given a command. And it's a sort of sorcerer's apprentice sort of story where, you know, he's told, you know, get some water from the river. And eventually, you know, they come back a week later and there's no river. And, you know, he's, he's got all the water from the river, uh, you know, because no one told him to stop. And those sort of stories. So Asimov wrote a lot of stories about yes, robots. <laughs> Um, this is just one of them. Now, what are what kinds of things did the, his other stories about robots tend to be about? They're about it's about um, taking robots as what as a as an as an engineering thing. Um, I think he, he may even have had a grand plan. I don't know, but the but there was always an idea that robots were these sort of terrorizing creatures. Uh, from a sort of earlier age, there are you know there are earlier stories about robots, and they they tend to be about marauding robots that you know come and invade and destroy yeah. and kill the, and maim. The the general sort of shape of the earlier stories is is more like the Frankenstein story, yes. which is that you know man has created this object. I mean, it's not terribly different from the 
the Rabbi Lowe stories in the sense that you were talking that he's created this thing, but it's somehow out of his control. And it had become a bit so, of a, something to protect you. Well, turns, to, do, turn, to do various tasks. I mean, it's yeah. not necessarily yeah. to protect you, but it might be the the word comes from a, a, a Czech play by Carol Chapek and the word means worker or drudge worker or the word slave, robot. effectively, in, in Czech. And they they were, you know, a group of machines which which acted like servants, behaved like servants. The denouement of the uh, or the dramatic tension in in um, R U R, such as it is, which is the <laughs> Chapek play, is that the problem arises when they're given human qualities, and then in fact they revolt, rebel, and enslave the humans. And basically, for quite a long time, that issue of uh, uh, oh yes, yes, we made a, a race of brilliant shiny slaves. Oh no, they have taken us, uh, taken over, and enslaved us. That was the story. And and you mentioned Campbell earlier. I mean, Campbell basically got bored with that story. He thought it, it was kind of lame and stupid. And so he and Asimov set up a, a set of codified a set of rules which would stop that story happening. And then Asimov realized that what was neat about these rules was that they were a kind of uh narrative generator the, i mean they're, they're quite famous they're called the three laws of robotics yeah so what are they uh, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm mm-hmm. two a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would co- conflict with the first law so if a human said go kill that guy no matter who the guy was, the robot wouldn't or sh- yes. shouldn't, according to these laws, be able to do That's it. right. And three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Well, I mean, just the way two and three are written, the as long as does not conflict is mm-hmm. like... The conflict is built in. Yeah, the conflict is built in. And, I, I mean, I think that Alan was alluding to the, the idea that, that actually Asimov or Asimov and Campbell or whoever sat down and thought okay let's think of all the the ways this conflict could happen and produced eventually over three decades i suppose a a a set of stories a lot of stories about 30 stories with a different kind of nugget of an idea they all tend to be not dissimilar shape to that one where the story sort of builds up and then the final two paragraphs is the Oh my gosh, denouement! <laughs> I mean, that was a form he was possibly a bit over fond of, but they're not. I mean, that's you know they they take a real issue. He is not necessarily the world's greatest dramatist of ideas. He does tend to write stories where people talk to each other about the different sides of the well, ideas. Well, in a sense, the, the the laws that they drew up, which were to sort of make man-made machines actually um, work better as man-made machines, ones that, you know, like we build them now, you know, you, you don't build a lathe where you can stick your hand in, you know, you always have these safety protocols. Um, the fact that they've done that takes away the drama. I mean, that all these previous robot dramas had been about, um, you know, there is this conflict between people and, and the things that they've created, and he was getting rid of that. You know, that, you know so how do you then write a story? You know, if you've got rid of that tension, which is, you know, and, and it, it, it's, it is a, 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 that, that nugget people keep coming back to. 
like I've seen Asimov stories adapted. So, so, so I'm, I'm sorry, Alan. Out. I just want to stop you for a second because when you say he got rid of that, what do you mean? Well, he got because of because these, the, so these law. You're saying that these laws yeah. he actually applied to the robots in his stories. He didn't allow the robots to contravene these laws in his stories. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the essence of the story, which, uh, the essence of the idea. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, That's okay. I just wanted to get that, get that clear. No, no problem. The, um, quite often in the stories, he refers to the, these, the positronic brains of the robots. This is another thing that identifies the Atomos story, the positronic brain. Very important because it was positron was a new thing. Science made it good. <laughs> um, and uh, he says it's actually it's, it's, it's part of the laws. Of the, of the, it's built in to the brains. It's not, it's not a, an optional extra. Um, although he then plays with that occasionally just to make up a new story. So, so yeah, the, the bogus science uh, aspect of it is that you couldn't make a positronic brain with, without. without these laws. Yeah. The, the, it wouldn't be a brain. It wouldn't do anything unless these laws were also built into it, which is a bit of a, a reach in terms of, you know, it's handy for plot logic. But because, yeah. because all of a sudden, all you need, once you have this logic built into the brain, yeah. is two conflicting directives absolutely yes and that's that's what a lot of the stories sort of uh explored i mean there is this sort of ungenerous view that you know they they develop this these laws to 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 generate ideas and conflicts and so forth but in a sense it was the other you can see it the other way around you're given these commandments and you know you have to work through in dialogue what happens in you know such and such a situation so so he's making sure you can't take the easy way out uh, as far as plot goes yeah you have to kind of go beyond these the the sort of uh, Rossum's Universal Robots, Carl Chopic thing of oh well, then they revolt and then they they enslave people. Well, well, I think I think one of the things that it does um, look at is the way sets of commandments function as axioms, and and that the axiom based idea of science was in the forties and fifties pretty much the central the idea. Model. Um, which is that all of science could somehow be developed. You could codify you know, whatever, 10 commandments of science or 20 or 5 or whatever it was and build the whole of knowledge and the whole of the universe from these uh, immutable laws, providing you got the right ones. And so that one of the uh, things that's actually quite important about Asimov and I think actually rather key to his popularity is that he was, as well as being a writer of Pulp Fiction, an actual, real, genuine scientist. He's Dr. Asimov. Okay. And um, he only uh, gave up his uh, his scientific career. What, what was it, biochemist? Biochemist. Yeah. He, he went on to the early 50s, I think. Yeah, into, into the 50s when uh, he was born in 1920. So, you know, his his young adult life, he was, he was a, <laughs> a, a proper scientist. And... That was actually not that common in that world, uh-huh. and I think it brought a sort of element of validation, which was, which was useful, as well as the fact that you know, validation to what to the to, field to of, the field. Yeah, yes, yeah. The, the, the field was was from the beginning and remains to this day somewhat anxious about its uh, value. But we, we, we so have, that people yeah. are you know enormously excited. They're doing it. They love it. But at a particular point you can get most of its contributors to be either aggressively defensive or apologetically defensive about its quality. There is this, con- this, this sort of constant refrain in, in, science, in blurbs on the back of science fiction uh, uh, anthologies, etc. Even continuing up to today, it's like, well, you know, science fiction has grown up. Or <laughs> science fiction is, you know, etc. I just want to talk a little bit about his strengths 
and weaknesses as a writer. And it might be a little unfair, but I just want to mention a couple of things about this story, the segregationist. Um, we have uh, the, the Medang saying uh, – but actually, just before you get anywhere, yeah. mate, you're going to say this as well. The fact that this guy's called Medange. Yeah. You know, nobody says It's impossible <laughs> to pronounce. Yeah. Uh, you know, no one would ever actually use that as a... As a Shortening as a, of as a medical short, engineer. No, because it's more difficult to say than <laughs> medical engineer. But um, the Medange says, all right, said the Medange, unmollified. Um, <laughs> why bother, said the Medange, indifferently. Yeah. Um, the surgeon said, stolidly. Um I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, you all just heard it. Um, this, this isn't something that we kind of... I, no, I, I mean, it is, you know, I, I'm a professional sub-editor, as some people know, and and clearly from my kind of... Um, would you draw a line through those? I, in principle, I would. But in fact, in the context, the context of the story is, oh, it's a surprise that... And I think, actually, what... There is an element, although how conscious this is, I don't know, because you can find it in the other stories as well. Um, that the two people are to be put in a, you know, so you don't distinguish them in advance. And so I think this idea of kind of programming how the thing is to sound, which is essentially what that style of writing does, it's, you know, this is this is the content, but it is to be done in a stolid manner. Yeah. There's ever so slightly a form follows function element to the way that's doing and and uh, to be honest although i'm not sure that it's the most successful way of doing it i do think that is actually a deliberate thing that he does Mm -hmm. in this story Mm -hmm. that he he's not he's trying to make these two people like totally on a level he's not going to be able to do that in a convincing way with the content of their conversation because a that's not a strong point of his anyway and notoriously if people have conversations it's a famous parody of of Asimov from, I suppose, some point in the mid-60s where the people are having a long discussion and then at one point one of them says, I've forgotten if it's me talking or it's you <laughs> talking in this sentence. Um, and, you know, it's funny because it's true. A- Alan, is there anything that bothered you about the story, the way it was written or anything? Um, well, no, I think it... I, I chose this one. I wanted you to read this one because I thought it, it was typical. You know, it encapsulated uh-huh. a lot of his stuff. It is just two people talking. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, the themes as well, you know, it, it sort of sums up stuff quite deftly. But um, I think it's more than... I, he's, he's bad more than the mechanics, though, if you ask me sometimes. Okay. So how do you mean? It's, it's, his characterization's pretty poor. You Wait, know, that he, doesn't really apply in this, because no, the gag this is... Not story, is, but I mean, we're talking yeah. about the robot stories yeah. in general, or even you know, some of his uh, longer uh, stuff. I could have put, like, a Brooklyn accent on the Medang or something. <laughs> <that might have. laughs> Given the game way. No, no. Um, it, it, no, I, you know, I actually quite like this story, because of, you know... It, like I say, it doesn't encapsulate a lot of the themes that I, you know, picked up when I read this as a child, and I, you know, I haven't read it since I was a kid and loved all these stories. But coming back to it, it was quite interesting to find a that you know he was quite poor. Yeah, that that stuff. was definitely my sense coming back to it was that I read these probably when I was ten or eleven, mm. and there were my dad's copies. There was a great picture on the cover of iRobot of a robot's head with. Red, shining, you know, glowing red eyes. And then I, uh, first of all, I half inched it off my dad anyway, and and its successor, which was called, they were called iRobot and the rest of the robots, these two collections. And then I decided I'd grown out of these things. So 
even though they didn't actually belong to me, I sold them. <laughs> and <laughs> and so, you know, get I got I got a copy of the I mean the main collection now is called The Complete Robot and, and collects those two sets of stories and some others. And mm-hmm. I think it sort of some drops some of the or it certainly reorders them. Mm-hmm. Um so they're not really as I encountered them as a child. And these stories span all the way from from the early 40s i would say till the mid 70s so this is a theme yeah. that he yes. returned to again and it again was and again. A, it was he had two main themes he had a, a there's a set of these stories which are based around uh, a character called dr susan calvin who asimov is somewhat in love with he's very fascinated by her and she is a, a scientist an ice cool scientist who only likes robots and doesn't really think humans are much up to snuff and she's a robo psychiatrist so she understands the psychiatry she, she, she's a robo psychiatrist but she's human she's yes. human but she but really heart, she, she's, <laughs> she's, she's, human, she's really but, into robots yes. more than humans and yeah. so she's not yes absolutely but this particular story is called lenny and it's about a, a robot with developmental problems is uh, it yeah it's like it acts like a, yeah well anyway the final um, the final two paragraphs. In heavenly celeste-like sounds, it called out, Mommy, I want you. I want you, Mommy. And the footsteps of Susan Calvin could be heard hurrying eagerly across the laboratory floor towards the only kind of baby she could ever have or love. <laughs> um, it was a Heart different era. <laughs> <laughs> what can we say? It, uh, Calvin is a funny character because you can see him trying so hard to push it outside the uh, cliche of the woman in the science fiction story but he kind of pushes it into a much more problematic (laughs) and and this is a character how i think he he you know he liked this character it was an interesting character for him he was a he wrote several stories and and they all suffer from the same problem that that essentially he doesn't know the first thing about women or he doesn't know how to write about women anyway so you read them and you can't help laughing at them and that's, but you see, I think if you're ten, eleven, or whatever, I don't think that's a problem at all. And I think some of his flaws as a writer for grown-ups are actually rather effective if you're, you know, young. Possibly, you need to be quite nerdy as well. Alan, do you, do you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I, as much as I've said very, very negative things about him, I, you know, I've got a huge affection for him because these, you know, these stories. I've, I've held on to this book, you know, all this time, even though I've not read them, because they, you know, they meant a lot to me. And, uh, uh, and I was quite conscious of that uh, with all the sort of studies I've done, because I'm, you know, at university, I was studying philosophy of mind and so forth. And always in the back of my head were, you know, the fact that uh, a lot of my attitudes um, and positions that, that I took up when I was studying this were formed, um, or nah, formed is unfair, but at least guided and these books had an impact. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know whether they just keyed into something that was already there, but certainly, you know, they, they, they formed a reference for me. It seems like all of them were intending to wrestle with uh, ethical dilemmas and moral dilemmas. Yeah, moral terms, but also the idea of um, a big theme is, you know, what is what is it to be human? And yeah. what would it mean if a machine had any of the qualities of human? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are different aspects you can take out. You know, you could talk about emotional machines, but often people talk about um, whether they're able to reason, whether they can have free will, all these sort of things.
where you've been Smashed up toy Are you lost again? Your circuit's blown Will you find your cord in its home? Home, 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 home Your battery's low Did you crash again? Robot boy, do you need a friend? Hey, little droid, is your head on wrong? We did an interview earlier this week with David Levy, a writer and creator of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, We had a technical drama, unfortunately, which means we can't play it for you. But he said two things that I think are pretty interesting. First, aside from writing a new book called uh, Sex and Love with Robots, which maybe (laughs) we'll get onto in in a second. And I'm sorry, I'm giving him a free plug, but I mean, it's it's a great title and I'm going to let him get away with it. Uh, Aside from doing that, he won the Loebner Prize in 1997 at the Salmagundi Club in New York. Alan, can you tell us a little bit about the Loebner Prize and also maybe how it relates to what is known as the Turing Test? Uh, well, I think it's, um, it's a, an institutionalized uh, annual competition yeah. uh, to, to, uh, that carries out of the Turing Test um, by, by Alan Turing, famous mathematician and gay. Uh, who uh, like all 90, robots? Like all robots? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in 1950, he proposed this uh, a test, which was kind of quite badly explained, actually, uh, which is uncharacteristic for him. But uh, he was suggesting a test which filtered your interaction with an entity, a, a, an agent, down to just questions and answers. So you just have text, which you can you know, like an you, IM session. A bit like, exactly like an instant message session. And uh, the, the point of the test was, can you decide whether it's um, a computer or you know, an, an artificial intelligence or, or a real person? And honestly, sometimes in online uh, yeah. discussion forums, I don't know sometimes. None of those people on the internet are real. Yeah. It's all just computers. Yeah. But the, the Loebner Prize, 
um, it's a, a kind of a literal. Yeah, um, they, they actually people enter the competition uh, with their with their they, they write programs on computers to uh, mm-hmm. to interact with people in an instant message sort of yeah system. And, uh, and I think the way that it's set up is you, you've got about. You've got, like, say, ten computer terminals, and you've got five computer programs and five real people, and then you've got ten judges. And you, you don't know which terminal is a computer, and, you, and the, the judges don't know which uh, computer is a program and which computer is a real person. And they sit down, and they have this little instant message session, and they try to uh, see if uh, one of the judges gets fooled. And I, I think the idea is that if one of the judges does get fooled, then they win, like, $100,000 from this eccentric, uh, wealthy man named uh, or is he a Mr. Man? Loebner. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> right. He has mm. money. Um, but, and, and no one's ever won it. But this guy, David Levy, did come the closest right. in 1997. And when we caught up with him and interviewed him, he said that in his opinion, since then, uh, artificial intelligence hasn't progressed one bit. Yeah, uh, you're probably, probably right. Um, the strange thing about the Turing test is it's – it's easy to uh, fool people with some incredibly simple programs, and also um, it's quite easy to have lots of pre-canned simple things. If you have a very large vocabulary of responses and sort of key them into you know uh, typical questions, mm-hmm. you can actually uh, fool people. There's a famous. So if you build your database big enough, yeah. you can. Yeah, you, there's, there's there's lots of like um, tricks. Without actually working at the hard bit, which is to make something think and reason intelligent and, and all these sort of things. They're all kind of obfuscation of a sort, or, or misdirection is perhaps a yeah. better word. Yeah. If, the, you, if, you, if you go online and, and look at the transcript of David Levy's winning program, actually, you'll see that his program wants to do nothing but talk about the Clinton impeachment uh, <laughs> right. proceedings, which in 1997, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the person responding to him was saying, you know, I couldn't care less. And the program keeps coming back to it. Well, there's, there's one quite famous, I, I don't know if it w- was part of the competition, but a famous Turing test, something called ELISA. Um, is it ELISA that, that also acts like a sort of um, cheap Freudian psychiatrist who will just say, Really? Tell me about that. And and people are actually quite easily fooled by some simple strategies like that. Um, the, the other thing that he mentioned in his interview, which I thought was very interesting, um, he was talking about love and sex with robots. And he's saying that um, mm. in the future, there will, will be robots that are programmed to give human beings pleasure. And not just any old kind of pleasure that you might be thinking about or familiar with, but the pleasure that only a, a, an intelligent, sophisticated uh, lover could give. He's imagining a future where, uh, you know, robots are fully paid up, kind of like uh, things that can make moral choices and can also provide all kinds of, oh, you now. know, <laughs> yes, fun. Um, and um, but at the same time, they've been programmed to give humans pleasure. So it it, it adds. It, I, I think this comes to what I think is sort of the crucial. Uh, and you may disagree with me about this, but the crucial tension in that gives rise to so many of these uh, laws, the, the these robot laws. Uh, and the, to so many of the conundra that are in Isaac Asimov's um, robot stories, which is that if you've got a robot who's been programmed by humans to do certain things, but you're also positing that this thing is a sort of individual with its own intelligence and its own individuality, you've got a paradox. How can it accept to just follow orders and also have free will, for instance? How can it be a robot but also have the free will to be, I don't know, racist or to, or to not enjoy being a prostitute for the rest of its life? Right. Or um, I, 
don't really see there's there's a real collision. I mean, the problem with the the, the sort of science fiction view of you know, you've got human like robots is how do you know when you're obeying a human or not? That's you know that's that's the second law, isn't it? You've got to obey a human. Well, how do you, how can you tell? So you know, at what point do you say, well, actually, I'm not going to obey you because I think you're a robot? And you know, there, there is there is no real clash there because in a sense, you're just being a decent person. You know, a robot is a de- it's a Dr. Susan Calvin herself says robots are like people; they're just more decent. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Well, what do you think, there isn't there isn't anyone here particularly to to defend David Levy's. Premise. That's and, true, and that's a and, bit unfair. And the the um, the impression that I believe you got was that he, he wasn't particularly well versed in the science fiction exploration of these ethical problems. Anyway, no. In, in, in fact, he not any he, Star Trek. No, no. In, in fact, he 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 said that he doesn't read science fiction at all. Yeah. So so I feel you know. Uh, no, the reason I sort no, of slightly great. gasped is I'd suddenly realised that the the issue that we're actually reaching is not the problem of i mean it's what alan's just said but the more sort of small artificial intelligence type things which are abroad in our culture the problem is actually that they are interacting with each other and not knowing who they have to obey because you you're getting the the main area of artificial intelligence in the last 10 years has been really the interface of people with machines a sort of cyborg dimension to it rather than building a machine or a group of machines which are independently intelligent it's been a a combination of biological actually us and machines which enhance our capability and the most obvious example of that is in fact the internet which has millions and millions of people inputting but a technological interaction which creates something which wouldn't be possible otherwise but there's lots of other things abroad in the internet, which are all kind of very well, that, primitive. You, and you, you were talking before about uh, like sort of fourth generation warfare in Eastern European countries, um, which go kind of beyond the, what we sort of think of as normal uh, uses of, um, I don't know, robots or artificial uh, intelligence. Uh, calling them robots at this stage, I mean, basically, they're, you know, we think of them as... They're not physical. No, and they're programs to mess up other people's programs. Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments is that people who are exploring this is that in the future, in the next five to 15 years, the sophistication of these machines, of these programs, as they're moving around this large scape and not just encountering us, you know, potentially on messages. I mean, we all have this somewhat anyway, that on comment threads on websites that we are uh, dealing with some thread will be some comment will be posted which which is just some eccentric thing saying hi there come to my site which has been posted by a program rather than the person so a, a very basic version of that already exists and you have to kind of screen them out and it's called spam this is a uh, a military version of this that so it's more sophisticated and it is meant basically to crash systems uh, if spams are reading the systems of filtering to any degree of sophistication, and are meeting similarly programmed um, entities, not conscious, but programmed to sort of persist and to move around and adapt, the argument that's being made is that there will be a point not all that far from now where the number of entities on the internet will be, you know, 99% non-human. 
they won't necessarily be smart, but they will be generating an enormous amount of noise and interaction and effects, which we will have to be adapting to. This cannot happen. 
the big glaring aspect of this story we haven't touched on is that it's a story about race. Yeah. Uh, lots of science fiction has dealt with the threat of mechanization and roboticization to workers. But Asimov in the story makes robots metallos, which could be mispronounced. Mulatto, yeah. Yeah. Um, he makes robots themselves a sort of historically oppressed class. Yeah, th- there is a history of uh, um, a, a, a sort of a metaphor for class or, or race or whatever. That, you know, um, uh, uh, the, the earlier stories are about um, them as a metaphor for, for workers, as we know. You said with, with Carol Chapek, the, the, the word robot itself comes from worker. Uh-huh. And uh, if you go back to Metropolis, there's some um, what we would see now is quite heavy-handed imagery of people being the extensions of machines. Um, and uh, there is a section of the Communist Manifesto. Uh, shall I should I read that? The, you want to read a section I, of I the Communist know. Manifesto? <laughs> why, why not? It, is, it was kind of it was sort of uh, it, it sort of summed up a feeling that, uh, that was around at the time, sort of the, um, the turn of the, the century, sort of 18th and 19th century. That, that sort of a whole era, and there was a, a thing in the Communist Manifesto that said, um, the extensive use of machinery uh, and division of labor, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character and consequently all charm. Mm. He becomes an appendage of the machine and is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most easily acquired knack that is required of him. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers. As privates of the indus- industrial army, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine. And so, you know, you've got – it's the same imagery that's in Metropolis, which is you actually see these scenes where oh, there's a machine and it fades into workers moving mechanically in the mm-hmm. same manner. Well, one would presume then that, that Marx would be uh, quite happy about uh, unshackling workers yeah. from this kind of drudgery and just handing it all to a bunch of robots. Um, yes. yes. I'm not sure that that was particularly <laughs> was not on, his mind. on his agenda. Um, I mean, it's true that there were stories in the – uh, in the German Romantic era, like Tales of Hoffman, where automata and so on were uh, thought about and discussed, but they, they weren't the, the idea of multitudes of them. I think is a 20th century idea, uh-huh. um, and uh, I'm not sure if Chapek is the first person to to uh, realise it, but I think he might be. And what's interesting about the about RUR and about the idea of robots in the 20s and 30s, I think, is that there is a fascination with the idea of them as are they a metaphor for workers but also obviously this huge anxiety that uh, you know what what if the workers enslave us all which which is not a particularly um it's a a fear of you know what had happened at the bolshevik revolution and uh, i mean yeah it's, it's not it's not that that big of a step from what if the workers enslave us all to just well what if the workers decide they don't quite like the role that they've been given yeah exactly and uh, this is a general anxiety before the Second World War. What's interesting about the Asimov era and this story at the end of it is that, uh, yes, a complex new twist has has arrived in it, which is that in the history of... In American history, um, the slaves weren't, in fact, industrial workers. They were agrarian um, slaves. And the connection that Asimov is making quite late in this cycle of stories. Uh, I mean, I think it's been hinted at before, but this is the first time it, the story is called segregationist, as you suggest, Metallas and Mulattoes are not so distinct from each other. It was written in 1967. And it's written in 1967. So this is in- extremely germane. I mean, you know, Watts has already burned. Um, the civil rights movement has 
uh, is in full effect, yeah. and and so on and so forth. And uh, yes, he's he, this is an and this is an idea that he will continue to draw. And I mean, he 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 wrote a story which became a novel, I think, it, sort of ten years later, which is called Bicentennial Man. Yes, uh, which mines the same um, theme, and the very fact that it's called Bicentennial Man is obviously. Uh, a comment on the fact that it's 200 years into the American experiment, social experiment and and the, the great sin of the American social experiment is that not everyone was included on full citizen on full rights of citizenship. Well, and the fact that they, you know, exterminated an entire continent of its peoples and culture. But um, yeah, I, yeah, that's <laughs> that's really <laughs> not the I um, the uh, but but the twist that he puts into to this story is that it's that there is this oppressed uh, class or race of metallos. Um, but it doesn't just end there. The uh, the the metallos are um, uh, this particular metallo is kind of a racist yes yeah and he's and it seems to me that this question this story is asking a question well you know if if uh if robots are going to have a free will or going to be fully paid up citizens um they sort of have to be allowed to think that way i to be honest i think that's pushing further than Asimov is getting at in this story. Okay. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true, and in a sense, I think that it it underruns the whole area. But I'm not sure if this story is sophisticated enough to actually pick up that thing. I I think what this story is about is that it's a it's a cleverly written twist, given the context of the times, and that you don't know throughout the whole thing. And as we were saying earlier, the, the way it's written is is quite careful, so that you can't you're not aware of this until you suddenly are aware of it and then you know you snap your fingers and aha and i think he's also a little bit poking fun at people's ribbing him about his slightly mechanical style i think that that it's it's deliberately overdone in this context so i don't think this is a particularly deep thought i think Mm. his deep thoughts were possibly kept for later and actually he's not that great at deep thoughts about this territory I don't think you can uh, uh, read into the fact that this character who turns out to be a robot is saying these things about, yeah, actually, it's fine to be segregationist about these things. Mm-hmm. It's not a mark of approval. That's no. what you're saying. It's not a mark of approval. I, th- I think that, that it's a point that's subservient to, in my mind, what the, the sort of the, the bigger thing, which is, is, the, is the, principle, the principle of equivalence. I mean, the, 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 sort of the punchline of the story is, oh, ha, well, no, he was a robot all along. And that, that's a, a big part of all his other stories, which is that, you know, you tr- you're treating these robots as people. They, they act as people. They're uh, functionally equivalent to people. Asimov was also latterly, partly as a result of his enormous fame, but in fact contributing to it as well, he had he was an immense publishing success as mm. a popularizer of science. And his name went on the front of really quite a large number of books which non-fiction were books encyclopedias. non-fiction books, which were encyclopedias of modern knowledge. Yeah. And it occurred to me that one of the things 
the thing that I was just saying about the way these stories are very effective if you're young but then become less convincing when you grow up actually this is a um, an element of the teaching of mathematics and science that when you start you're taught you're taught some things which remain true like the orders the num- numbers come in and you know <laughs> but you're taught lots of things which are kind of simplified special cases which if you carry on studying mathematics for example the geometry you learn when you're 12 turns out to be if not actually untrue when you're 22 and still studying mathematics but it's very much a special case which only exists in a fictional world but in order to understand the complexities of geometries as mathematics understands them once you're doing it at a at a high ed level you have to start with these kind of clumsy fictions it recapitulates the order of of the way they were studied in human history but it doesn't actually do it in a in a sort of conscious way because you know when you're 10 that's much too much information to take on board and it just suddenly struck me that the robot stories are kind of like the maths or science that you learn when you're 11 or 12 in the sense that it's quite it's oversimplified in and actually untrue and what you have to do if you carry on studying it is is learn how to jettison the bits which are untrue and that's quite unusual in terms of fiction because it is not true that ordinary children's fiction the moomin troll books or the little house on the prairie or whatever are um, it's a different kind of thing that you learn. It's 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 certainly simplified in terms of sentence structure. And, you know, the letters are bigger on the page and things like that. But it's not emotionally untrue. It's just less arduous to to read. And it's quite often, in, in as you know, people grow up realize it's actually more emotionally intense. And you are still very drawn to it when you when you grow up or when you're reading it to your children. And they're rule, they're rule based. You know, and as, uh, the, there was the thing about you know the four-year-old child who just like learns the rules of a game, and they you know they they stick to it, and they, you, there's a t- point where you learn rules. Well, there's a real pleasure in figuring out what he's doing. Yeah, like then, you can sort of you know that he's set a game up in advance for you, yeah. and you, but you don't know what it is, and you know that with each one of these robot stories, you yeah. can begin it, and you know that you're going to pick up a few little clues about where the pieces are. Yeah, it's a bit like the game Mastermind. You ever play that with the, the <laughs> coloured pegs? And you say, okay, the rules. You I know think the rules. I know the game you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. There's, there, there, there are a lot of these stories like that. And there's, um, there's one of the more famous stories, A Little Lost Robot, where Dr. Susan Calvin, again, is trying to like outwit a robot. And it's the explanation sort of like go through three or four different iterations of an experiment where she's trying to say, ah, but the first law means this, and the second law means that if we tell him to do this, and he won't do that. And, yeah, it is like sort of trying to work through a logical paradox or, or not, not pa- paradox, but a logical a logic problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's me. I, I was the nerdy one who wanted to do logic problems. So, yeah, there is definitely that attraction in it. Thank you, Alan Trawartha and Mark Sinker. Next week, we'll be discussing Beyond the Reach of Storms by Don Malcolm, and our guest will be Martin Skidmore. Thanks very much for listening.